The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Hey, listen, it is good to be with you today. Real good to be with you today. Uh, Paul's out of town. He asked me if I would fill in today and to start the first in a four-week Easter series, and so I get the privilege of being able to do that. But before I do that, I just want to give you a quick update. Uh, Many of you know that uh, God called Brandy and me to plant a church last year in the Billings Heights, and so we've been on that journey for some time with an incredible group of people. An incredible group of people. Um, People think I'm kidding when I say this, but I mean it like God has blessed our church at Grace Point with people that are a hundred times better than I've ever been on my best day. And that is evident thus far. Uh, Let me give you a quick update. We have had six services thus far, two official services, but the other four have kind of been soft services. Uh, Last Sunday was one of those soft services where we wasn't on the invite card, it wasn't on the website or anything like that. And uh, we had 128 in attendance last week. How exciting is that, huh? I mean, God has been just blowing us away as a team. It has been remarkable and incredible. We've given away probably over 30 welcome bags to visiting families just in a handful of services. And what's really exciting is folks are coming back. We've got folks coming back for the second, third, and fourth time saying, hey, we want to make Grace Point our church home. And so uh, it's exciting to see. It's just so exciting to see what God has been doing there. And so thank you for your prayers. I will tell you, we have so much excitement that we were supposed to go weekly on our official launch day. Pray for May 5th. That is our official launch day. We were supposed to go weekly then. We've been doing monthly services up until then. And we talked about it as a church a few weeks ago and realized that we were all having conversations with people where they'd say, when's the next service? And we'd go, oh, it's next month. And they'd go, oh, okay. Um, I guess I'll just wait to hear, I guess, when the service was. And we all kind of discovered people were ready to get involved. They were ready to plug in. They were ready to be about it. And so this coming Sunday, a week from today, April 7th, we are every single week at Grace Point. So lots of really, really neat stuff going on. Amen. Hey, listen, to God be all the glory. It is all him. It is all him. That's for sure. We're just privileged to be able to serve him in doing so. You can also stay uh, with us, by the way, through social media. So find us on Facebook and Instagram at Grace Point Billings, website gracepointbillings.com if you just want to follow along. But thanks for your prayers. Thanks for being such an incredible sending church and incredible encouragement to us. We uh, we're so blessed and so grateful to each and every one of you. So thanks for that. So today we are going to begin in this new series I told you, um, coming through Easter Sunday. And today the title of the message is called The Teachings of Jesus. And Pastor Paul's asked me to teach on Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. So let me give you a little bit of context before we dive into our sermon today. In context, we see Jesus has been with his disciples. Jesus has been serving communities. He has fed 4,000. He's fed 5,000. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. He's done incredible things. And you would imagine in the region that Jesus is now gaining an incredible amount of popularity. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are beginning to get increasingly more frustrated at Jesus' ministry because, quite frankly, Jesus is getting center stage and they're not. And so they're coming to Jesus and saying, well, who are you really? Who are you really? Just tell us who you are. See, they could tell that Jesus was doing a lot of miracles. It's pretty obvious when a couple of loaves and some fish can feed four or five or 8,000 people That's pretty obvious you can do miracles, but they didn't want to believe who he kind of said that he was. So they said, who do you say that I am? And he said, oh, you know, you guys always just want a sign. 
By the way, side note, every generation has wanted a miracle from God to prove that he exists. And no generation who's ever had one has ever believed because of a miracle. I think it's a sermon for another time. But he's saying, listen, you, you can interpret the signs of the times by looking at, or rather, you can interpret the weather by looking at the sky, but you can't, you can't figure out what's going on here. So Jesus is now uh, with his disciples, and we get to an incredibly pivotal point, an incredibly pivotal teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples and certainly to us today. So let's pick it up in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, it was very interesting, by the way, it's not the Caesarea that we normally read about. Uh, This Caesarea Philippi was really a, a pagan city worshiping false gods. It wasn't a lot, there wasn't a strong church there uh, yet in Caesarea Philippi. So it's kind of interesting that Jesus decides to use this moment as a time to teach such a a profound truth. Now, Jesus asks the disciples a question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus is beginning to say, okay, there's rumblings in the crowd. People are talking. But who, who, who are they really saying that they are? Now, they recognize, like I said, that there was some power in Jesus' ministry. So they wanted to think that it's got to be a, a prophet come back, okay? It can't be a new prophet. It's got to be something that had come back because there is a level of power that we discern here. Now, Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says to them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Interestingly enough, note that the disciples have been with Jesus for, I I think, at least over two years, perhaps closer to three years at this time, watching Jesus do miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching. Imagine living with a person who's never made a mistake in three years. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Never even made a mistake. And Jesus gets to this point in their life before he ever asks them this question, who do you say that I am? What kind of profession would you make? And in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it right. Yes, Peter got it right. We know Peter kind of has this reputation for for being a bit volatile in his speech. I feel like I I can relate to that. Just in full disclosure. But, uh, You know, he says, you're the Christ, you're the living God that we just sang about, the living God. Now, I think that he understood in his head what the Christ meant, but he didn't understand fully what that meant. We'll see why in just a minute. So here's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered him, blessed blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The truth of who Jesus is did not come out of man-made conjured logic. Okay, it didn't add up. It didn't. It wasn't something that if you just watched long enough, you can believe. We see uh, through Jesus's uh, life in the narrative of Scripture that that so many people watched and watched and watched and watched and watched. Even people watched him help hurting people, and they still didn't believe. So to understand that Jesus is the Christ is a revelation from God. It's a Holy Spirit kind of move. He says it's from the Father that you know this to be true. And then verse 18, he says, now I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this is one of those verses that gets misunderstood often, and it has for uh, a couple of centuries really. Uh, Let me tell you what it does not say, because we do have a lot to get through today. It does not say that Peter is the foundation 
of the church. Does it make any sense that God would make a human being the foundation of a church? Say it out loud. Does that make any sense at all? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. But we know that Peter is Petros, or rather rock is Petros, or or, I'm sorry, Petra is rock. Peter is Petros. And so there's this sort of connection between Peter and the rock. So what does it mean that he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The rock, the foundational rock is that Jesus is the Christ. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, come from heaven, perfect in every way, to be the propitiation for sin, to atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's the rock. We'll get to that in just a second, okay? And then he tells us this truth that Jesus is the Christ. He said, by the way, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Everybody say amen to that, right? Is the church the building, yes or no? No, okay, we know that to be true, right? So you know what that means? That means that we, the people, make up God's church. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. It's a pretty incredible truth, really incredible truth. Now, he continues on in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. He didn't want to go to the cross too soon. That's the short version of that. So he says that you've got the keys to heaven. How many of you are fans of the Indiana Jones series? Any Indiana Jones fans? The rest of you, you're just closet fans. You don't know. Like maybe you're unaware of how amazing Indiana Jones is. Men, like we all want to be Indiana Jones, right? We can do this. How many of you went out and bought a whip? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, don't go there. You're in your backyard snapping it, you know. But what's fun about Indiana Jones is, have you ever discovered in all this, his shows, and even those that are like it, that there's always a key? And the key opens the door to whatever treasure that there is to behold, or whatever uh, uh, great revelation there is to be. By the way, just side note, my favorite moment of an Indiana Jones ever is where they go to get the Holy Grail, and there's that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of year old like warrior guy sitting right there. And remember the the bad guy, the antagonist in the in the show. He he takes the wrong Grail, and, and his face melts off, and he dies. And what does the old guy say? He says, "You chose poorly." Yeah, I'll say. His skin melted off his bones. I'd say he chose poorly. I just love that. But that key, you had to have this right key, this right code to get into the blessing of whatever the next room might be. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have the key to heaven. Not that they own it, but that they know the truth that that key is. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the key to heaven. He is the key to having a relationship with the Father. Jesus said about himself a lot of things, but he said what? I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 10 says that he's the gate or the door to the sheepfold, okay? So he says, you've got the keys. You can can give the keys to people to know the truth of heaven, to know eternal life, to know salvation. It's an incredible thing. Now, this amazing moment, he's spoken to his disciples, they're right on board with him, they're tracking with Jesus, and, uh, and then Jesus makes a few other statements as the days go, and here's what he says in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day be raised. 
So imagine what Jesus is saying for just a moment. There's so many profoundities in this passage that it's really difficult to even narrow it down. But the disciples have come off this understanding that Jesus is the Christ. They're starting to narrow down their focus, starting to more, more fully understand, not fully, but more fully understand who Jesus is. Three years of wa- watching this perfection, and they're still learning how to follow Jesus. I think we can relate to that, can't, can't we? And it's a pretty profound thing, and everybody's celebrating. You've got the keys to heaven. Yes, we're going to go charge Palestine and we're going to win this over. And then Jesus says, but I need to tell you something first. It's great that you understand that I'm the Christ, but you don't fully understand what that means. He says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to the epicenter of your Jewish, uh, of, of your Jewish faith. I'm going to go to the city of David, the holy city of Jerusalem. And when I go there, your spiritual leaders are going to kill me. What? What? He said, your spiritual leaders, the the Sanhedrin, the the highest priests and scribes that you esteem, that you sit at their feet and you've learned, and you know their names, and if they had like baseball cards at the time, they'd have like Sanhedrin leader, you know, cards or something like this. They were the ones that people looked to. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they, they are going to kill me. But I'm going to raise again. Now, I can't imagine the shock that they must have felt. The confusion that they would have felt. If I, I, in their mind, the, 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 the Christ came, and in their mind, the Christ was going to come and establish his authority, and he would become king of the Jews, and he would stay, and there would be this incredible theocracy over the whole entire world because God is going to come and set himself. But he says, no, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go die at the hands of your trusted spiritual leaders. I think Peter, like probably you and me, tuned out right after he said, I'm going to go die. I'm going to be killed. Because he said that he's going to raise on the third day, but Peter clearly didn't hear that. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Far be it for you, Lord, this should never happen. Peter says, this is not what we had pictured for the foundation of this new Judaism, okay? This is not what we thought. And Jesus responds to him quite harshly, but it says he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He went from being Simon Bar-Jonah, you've heard the voice of God, to now he's Satan. You ever felt like that in your faith? You went from hero to zero pretty quickly? I think that's how he probably felt. But Jesus says, you're a hindrance to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting it on the things of man. See, Peter couldn't figure out how it was a good thing for the Christ to die. He couldn't figure that out. He couldn't figure out why why would it in any universe be good that God would come and die? Understand, before this time, resurrection wasn't a thing. See, we've never lived in a time where we haven't heard that Jesus rose from the dead, even culturally as Americans. In this time, in first century Judaism, resurrection wasn't a thing. It didn't happen. Okay, it wasn't like, oh, that's just common. You know, people rise from the dead. So it, it was completely incomprehensible. And why God would have to die is beyond their understanding. And Jesus says, you're distracting me. Get behind me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's the first uh, principle that's in your, in, your, uh, in your notes I want you to take this morning. is we understand the teachings of Jesus, what is the teaching that he's really trying us to focus on? Here it is. The foundation of the church is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The foundation, 
the bedrock, the crux, the main thing of our church is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection doesn't mean anything if Jesus didn't fully die. His death would have no nobility or no authority if he didn't raise from the dead. So when we talk about what is the church about, the evangelical church, the Jesus-centered church, what is it about? It is all about Jesus Christ dying on a cross and raising from the dead. Amen? I was really weak. Can we try that again? Amen? Amen. He rose from the grave. He rose. No one had ever done this before. He rose from the grave. This is incredible. That's the foundation of our church. It's why we gather together. It's why we share our faith. It's why we do what we do. But sometimes we get twisted, don't we? Sometimes the church of God worldwide, we get a little bit twisted and we start thinking that it's, we, we, in our actions, we start acting like the foundation of the church is strong morality. And you think, oh, well, nobody ever believes that. Well, it does because sometimes in church life, it's easy for us. And I'm not saying, man, I'm talking about in, you know, worldwide church. We can spend more of our time focusing on don't do bad things. Stop doing bad things. You're making God mad. Stop doing bad things. Do all these good things. Stop doing bad things. And it becomes the main focus is don't do bad, do good. Are those important? Yeah, you bet. Philippians 1.27, uh, uh, Jesus says that, uh, that we're to live, or God says that we're to live our lives in a manner worthy of the cross of Christ. We ought to live worthy lives. We have to care about how we act. We sometimes act as if the church is about being right. And in the, and in the pursuit of, of, of protecting doctrine, we fight with each other. And we think that the focus is on this fight about who's right and who's wrong. And so we, we, we just discuss and we fight with this group and with this group and we write against them online with what we call electronic courage. You ever had so tough courage that you can write it but you can't say it to their face? And we, we say they're wrong and we're right and we're right and they're wrong. And we start being the watchdog police about who's right and who's wrong. Is it important that we protect uh, the sanctity of doctrine? Absolutely it is. Is it important that we understand that the Bible is the complete, inerrant, authoritative word of God from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation? You bet it is. But hear me carefully. Being right is not the foundation of our church. Right? You get me? Nod your heads if you get what I'm talking about. The foundation of our church is the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not about our traditional customs, practices, or methods. Sometimes we can elevate our practices, which are fine. There's nothing wrong with religious practice. This, I know, you get ready for that? You got to prepare yourself. Don't be too shocked. But it's okay to have church without potlucks. Some of you are like, whoa, <laughs> you, mic drop, we're fighting, right? These customs are fine. These things are fine. But that's not the foundation of our church. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Nod your heads if you're tracking. I'll make sure they're with me there. The foundation of the church is that Jesus died and he rose from the grave to accomplish salvation for you and for me. That's the foundation of our church. Now, we got to ask ourselves what gets the most focus? Do we really, truly, and utterly focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means, or do we get sidetracked? But here's the better question. How can we participate in building God's church? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus answers it for us. Jump with me to verse uh, 24. Let's continue reading. Verse 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, 
Okay, are you with me? I'm going to go die at the hands of your religious leaders. Get behind me, Peter. You, you're thinking about man's way, not God's way. But here's what he says. Listen carefully. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, simple vernacular would be, if anyone wants to be a Christian. Think about it. But we separate sort of some of these things. We'll get to that in just a minute. Here's the connector point before we get into this, because some of you are listening to this, oh, it's one of those deny, take up, cross, follow me sermons. Got it. I've heard a thousand of those. But let me say to you a couple of different ways as we go. First is this. Jesus is asking us to do the very thing that he just told his disciples he was going to go do. We often separate God from this call, don't we? We think that God is up in heaven saying, you need to go deny yourself. You need to go do this and you need to go. And I'm going to be up here and I will look upon you in approval if you do it right. But really what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to go before you and show you how to live this way. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to go do the very thing that I've asked you, commanded you to do. First is this, deny yourself deny yourself. The Greek word for deny means to refuse to recognize or acknowledge, to reject or to repudiate. Wow, that's a a pretty bold word. To reject or to repudiate, to refuse to recognize or acknowledge. When Jesus says to deny ourselves, wouldn't you agree that in the narrative of scripture and in in what we know of Jesus' life that he denied himself? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his feet. He wasn't born from a wealthy family. He wasn't born uh, in a wealthy city of, of any note at all, which is why I love doing ministry in Montana. Let me, let me give you a, a, a nationwide hint about Montana. Nobody knows that we're here. Okay? Nobody knows that we're here. I'm kind of okay with that. Because you know what I'm praying for? I'm praying for revival in Billings in such a way that across the country they're going to go, where's Billings? We're going to say, God lives in Billings. Mm, how awesome would that be? Right? I think that'd be awesome. So we can relate. We see Jesus not making any money. We see Jesus walking where he went to. We see Jesus being poured out like a drink offering. We see Jesus doing things where he says he took on the very nature of a servant, being obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus lived the lifestyle of denying himself. He didn't think about himself. He washed his disciples' feet. He healed people. He helped people when he was hungry. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Jesus denied himself. He put himself last. He says to do the same. Denying ourselves does not mean think a little less of yourself. Okay, number one, it doesn't mean self-deprecation. It's not some false humility that you're a piece of garbage. That's not the point. Denying yourself means not only do you just think less of yourself, like you don't think about yourself as much throughout the day, it means you don't at all. Denying ourselves means that we think about how we can be a servant to others. But we live in a world where everything that happens in our work, our finances, our job, our church, our neighborhood, our family, our recreation, we always stop and evaluate, how does this affect me? Do I like what's happening? Do I like what's going on? Is this going to cause me a change of lifestyle? Jesus says, just deny yourself. And we'll get to, the, we'll get to why. He, he gives this incredible thing later. But we're called to deny ourselves to let God's will permeate our heart and our mind. Number two, take up our cross. He says, if you would come after me, you want to be a Christian, uh, deny yourself. Think about yourself less and take up your 
cross. This is an expression of how far our denial of self is willing to go. It takes a pretty incredible denial of ourself to be willing to take up our cross, to be able to take up this, this instrument of torture, this instrument of death. This is beyond fathom to understand. But he's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, what are you willing to give up? Are you willing to walk in the same road that I'm about to walk in? Think about Jesus's cross-bearing. Jesus did it publicly. Jesus did it in the public square. He taught in the public square. He healed in the public square. He did it in front of so many people all the time. He didn't have these back alley spiritual conversations, did he? He did it out in the wide open. That's why the day that he was arrested, they came at night with weapons and Jesus looks and says, you come at night with weapons? I've been in front of you in the middle of town in the middle of day all day long and you didn't have the courage to arrest me there. Jesus said, I've always done it out in front of you, but but we don't like to do that, do we? We hide our Christianity, and you think, oh, no, I don't hide my Christianity. Well, think about it. Sometimes we do. You take that Christian t-shirt off when you're going to go in public or to that office meeting. When you get in for that office lunch or that work lunch or that group of friends, you turn it from K-Love and you turn it to the country station because, you know, you don't want to offend them. Here at church, you give great news, and we all say, praise the Lord. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And we're like, you know, fist pump for Jesus. And then at the office, we say something great happened, and we say, yeah, that's really going to help our family. Where was the praise God? Where was the testimony? Where was our faith? Where did we live out loud? We keep our faith quiet, and we call that wisdom. Well, you know, nowadays, it's not popular to, let me be as clear as I can be. It was in no universe popular for Jesus to say and do what he did. And it led to his public execution. So when he says, take up your cross, he's saying, live out loud. Stop hiding. Don't put, your, don't put the light under a, under, under a bushel. Put it on a lampstand. Let it shine for the entire world to see. Take up your cross at work. Take up your cross at school. Take up your cross in your neighborhood. Be willing to give your life away in the public place, because that's what Jesus called us to do, and that's what Jesus did. Thirdly, he says, follow him. Want to be a Christian? Deny yourself. Count his will more important than your will. Take up your cross. Be willing to give it all for him. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. We talked about this at Grace Point last week. We answered the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And here's what I told them last week, and I think this is scripturally true. Following Jesus means that we mirror Jesus' life in every way possible. We mirror Jesus' life in every way possible. And the only reason I add every way possible is because I can't raise people from the dead. I can't feed 5,000 with a couple of fish and some loaves. Like, I can't do that. But there's a whole lot of lifestyle that I can he says, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. We need to live like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, and be involved like Jesus. It's really very, very simple. We do what he said. We live the way he lived. We follow him in so doing. Now, why should we answer this call? Uh, it may seem redundant. We, we kind of... If, if I can be honest, in the faith, sometimes we're guilty of saying, we need to do this because Jesus said it, and that's what we have to do. And I get that. I understand that level of obedience where it's like, the, it's like you say to your kids as a parent, why, why should I do that? And you say, because I said so. Any, anybody in the room ever love when their parents say that? Anyone? Anyone love it? Like, yes, they gave me the, do, you know, nobody ever says that. No child in the history of child 
ever likes it when their parent says, do it because I said so. And I'm going to tell you, God doesn't do that either. He never calls us to obedience and say, well, because I said so, deal with it. He tells us why. He tells us why we should be obedient. I love that God always answers these questions. It's twofold. Here's the first one. We save to lose. We save to lose. Look what the scripture says in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Let me, let me be brief if I could be. To save our life means that we become control freaks of our own world. I'm going to decide where I'm going to go. I'm going to decide when I'm going to go there. I'll decide how much money I spend. I will decide what we're going to do. I'm going to decide where my recreation is going to be. I will decide where I go to church. I will decide where I live. I will decide what job I'm going to do. I will decide all the things in my life. And what we do is we work so hard to control our little kingdom, don't we? We try to control it. We control the people around us. That's why we say what we say. We do what we do because we try to maneuver them to meet our needs. And we create our own kingdom where we think if I just fill in all of my spots and I'm happy, then I'm going to save my life. We protect it. We preserve it. We make it our own. And what, is, what ends up happening, Scripture says you're going to lose it. That's not how you save your life. Dear friends, in our world, you know what breaks my heart? So many things break my heart, but one of the things that break my heart so much in this world is the sheer volume of men and women who are trying to find themselves, and they just can't find themselves. They go to counselors, and they read self-help books, and all the pop culture says, find yourself, find you, find what makes you happy, find what makes you tick, and you worry about yourself first, and then you can help others, and, and you get yours first. You deserve happiness. You need to love yourself. And let me be as clear as I can be, that's nowhere in God's narrative of your life and mine. It's just not there. It's just simply not there. Finding your life is a mirage, You're not going to find your life. There's not some cosmic sort of purpose for you to be here in in terms of what business you ought to do and what recreation you should do. We live our lives in such a way that we we act like I've got to find this universal destined truth for my existence. God gave us that. It's a mirage. You can't find that. You can run to that. I think, oh, I think I'm supposed to do this. I think I'm supposed to do that. And you run towards it. And it's just another sand dune and another sand dune and another sand dune. Because we are trying to save our life. But here's the great truth. And I want this to be hope today. I think, I believe it is. End of verse 25. Whoever loses his life for my sake, then you will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, then you're going to find it then you're going to find it. We also lose to save. When we give up our life for Christ, it's only then that we discover this life that we've worked so hard to protect and to find. Mark's gospel even says that when we lose our, our life for his sake and for the gospels, then you're going to find it. Why is it that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Because he, because he says, it's only then that you get to discover real abundant life. I mean real life. You want to know what you're on this planet for? Follow Jesus with all you have. You want to know what you're destined to do on this earth for? Follow Jesus with all you have. You want to put to death that insecurity and that fear about who you are? Follow Jesus. Let him show you who you are because who you are is in the shadow of his wings. 
It's possible to find life and life abundantly. It's possible to wake up in the morning and feel a greater sense of purpose than to go to the daily grind. It's possible to experience that, but it's not possible when we try to do that for ourselves. But in Jesus, there's no limit to the life that he's called us to do in him. Amen? Guys, God is good. I want you to know something. I've never met anybody in my entire life happier, happier than a person who is completely surrendered to Jesus. Not puts a little Jesus in a pocket here, a little Jesus in the pocket there. I'm talking everything Jesus. We're running out of time, but I want to tell you one, one quick story as we close. I got this opportunity about a month and a half ago to meet uh, this gal named Kati. Kati is an Ecuadorian woman. She's a single woman, in, I'm guessing early 30s. Um, and she's been serving in the mountains of Ecuador for some time. And I'm sitting on this panel in Florida at one of our partner churches, and I'm sitting next to Kati, and they ask Kati a story, and she shares this story. They ask her the question, they said, when is a time in your life where you have, uh, where it seemed like God was closing a door, but it was really an open door? Guys, listen, I sat there, and I listened as Kati told the story just recently of going to this village. She drives into this village, and she sees women everywhere, women everywhere, women everywhere, everywhere. And these two men walk up to her, and they don't say hello. They don't ask her her name. They immediately said, are you Catholic? And she said, no, I'm not. And they were, began to get really upset and very angry. And they just were very mad that, that she was there. Because in that culture, if you're not Catholic, then you're the enemy, you're the devil. And so she began to talk to the village over some time. And, and so she was leaving the village that day. And these two men come running up to her. And this is a true story. I just heard this from, from her mouth. They, they walk up to her and they said, listen, if you come back to our village, we're going to burn your car and kill you. And she said, well, I promised this village I'm bringing Bibles, so I will be here next week. They said, we're going to kill you. So she went back home, and the next week later, she grabbed a friend, and she loaded her car full of Bibles. And she looks at her friend. She says, when we go to this village today, we could die today, or we could take Bibles to this village today, but we're going to go. And they drove up that mountain. And you know, to this day, those two men are elders in the church that started in that community. Amen? Yeah, that, praise God. Don't tell Kati that you can't give your life away and trust God with it. Don't tell her. She was like, she was one of those like bubbling people that's always happy and joyful and, and just excited about what God is doing. There's no limits on what God wants to do in us when we recognize we can give our lives away. Give our lives away and let God show you the life that he has uniquely called you to in him. Let me close with uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and listen to the parallel. I want you to really listen to the parallel here. He says, in beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Deny yourself. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We take up our cross. And looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, we follow Jesus. Who? Here's what Jesus did. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How is it that Jesus could consider this joy when he was about to endure the cross? I think it's twofold. One, because he knew what he'd accomplished for you and for me. Salvation. It gave him joy to face that so that you and I could have life and life abundantly in him. And secondly, look what he says. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew he'd get to be rejoined with his father in heaven. 
And the scripture says about you and about me, if we've given our life to Christ, that we're co-heirs with Jesus. So can we have joy as we deny and take up our cross and follow? Yeah, absolutely we can. Because someday we get to stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if we stay faithful to all of him. He deserves the glory, the honor, and there will be a day that is worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's go and live our life fully in him, finding him. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.